the National Archives podcast series, Credit Crunch Histories, Records of Bankrupts in the National Archives, presented by Chris Cooper. Good afternoon, everyone. First of all, can I check you can all hear me clearly? Okay, no problems. Thanks very much. Okay, I think in these credit crunch times with bankruptcies at record levels, we're all particularly aware of the problems caused by unpaid debt for individuals, for companies, for governments, and for society generally. And this is a good thing, because I think this will help us to understand the history of bankruptcy proceedings in the UK. In TNA, there are records of perhaps a million people who were involved in bankruptcy proceedings who suffered their own personal credit crunches uh, between the late 16th and the late 20th century. Uh, I should mention these are not records to raise the spirits. Uh, the stories they tell centre on economic misfortune, economic mismanagement, and on poverty and imprisonment, and on human gullibility, dishonesty, and greed. But if anyone of you are still with me, uh, they are a rich source for family history and biography, and they can also be used for a wide range of social and economic history topics. So my aim today is to explain what bankruptcy was, how it was administered, what records it produced, and how to go about researching them. As I've mentioned, running out of money has always been a significant problem, not only for individuals, but also for society generally. It's therefore always been a matter of concern for government and the courts. From the Middle, Age onward, Middle Ages onwards, creditors, those who owned money or goods, could proceed against debtors, those who owed them, and could not or would not repay them in the common law courts. The courts offered various remedies, usually including the seizure of some or all of the debtor's property and his imprisonment until the debts were paid. But these remedies were obviously unsatisfactory. Uh, debtors often found ways to defraud creditors, especially by concealing their assets. On the other hand, honest but unfortunate debtors might be imprisoned and thus rendered incapable of earning what they needed to pay their debts. They often spent many years in jail, leaving their dependents destitute. There was no procedure to investigate and regulate the claims of creditors. Meanwhile, the government and the commercial classes believed that these factors limited the availability of credit in trade and commerce, and thus restricted economic progress. So the government therefore sought to develop a legal and administrative system to deal with these problems as far as was possible. And this led, in 1571, to the Bankruptcy Act, which empowered the Lord Chancellor to appoint commissioners in England and Wales to detain bankrupts, defined as traders who could not pay their debts, to examine them, seize and sell their possessions, and distribute the proceeds to their creditor or creditors, without subject that subjecting them to imprisonment. The activities of the commissioners became known as bankruptcy proceedings. The details of these proceedings changed frequently over the years and over the centuries, but their basic principles have remained the same to the present day. Right, here's the classic definition of bankruptcy from William Blackstone. But basically, if I owe you or several of you money and I can't or won't repay it, you can file a bankruptcy petition in a court which will trigger the seizure of my assets. The court will then distribute my assets among you on a pro rata basis, um, subject to the payment of expenses. In appropriate cases, the court can discharge me from further liability. 
sector. That encourages me to become economically active again. If you're looking at bankruptcy records, it's very important to understand who were subject to them and who were exempt from them. Before 1862, the only people subject to bankruptcy proceedings were individuals defined as traders. Now, the problem here is, the is that the qualifying occupations were, were never comprehensively defined and the matter was often disputed. But generally, anyone who made a living by buying and selling, wholesale or retail, would be included. Uh, people who, who would not be included in this were members of the professions, bankers and landowners or farmers. Uh, from 1862, the distinction between traders and non-traders was abolished, and all debtors who owed more than a specified sum could be included in bankruptcy proceedings. So, just to make it clear who were excluded, debtors were, who were not traders, we discussed discuss that, small debtors, um, the amounts which qualified you for bankruptcy proceedings were defined by statute. They vary from time to time and generally rose with inflation, as you'd expect. Uh, from 1706 to 1842, only those traders owing more than £100 to a single creditor, £150 to two, or £200 to three or more, were subject to bankruptcy proceedings. Now, these sums were the equivalent of several thousand pounds today. Uh, therefore, small traders rarely appeared in bankruptcy records and they were subject instead to the law of insolvency. More about that later. Uh, from 1842, the qualifying sums were halved, and although they've often been adjusted since, they've generally followed a downward trend, in, that, in other words, bringing more and more people in, 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 into the uh, range of the bankruptcy law. Uh, the current bankruptcy level for debts is £750, so that's comparatively low. Right, fraudulent debtors were not included in bankruptcy proceedings, they were subject to the criminal law. Um, I'll say a bit more about companies uh, in a minute. Um, while this was, uh, as bankruptcy proceedings developed, uh, the position of debtors not included in bankruptcy uh, records caused a lot of concern. And in 1813, a court for the relief of insolvent debtors was set up to provide a regular method for some debtors to petition for release from prison. I'll provide an example of this later. Uh, between 1847 and 1861, insolvents who were not traders, who were small traders, could put themselves under the protection uh, of a court with a bankruptcy jurisdiction, and therefore they do appear in the bankruptcy records. So you just have to remember <coughs> these minor variations. Okay, companies, not normally included, but basically between 1844 and 1862, they were included. Um, and some details of the winding up of companies may appear in ban bankruptcy records right up until uh, 1893. Uh, all, all those details are on your handout, so I won't bother to go through the dates and, uh, in, in, in any detail. Right. How was bankruptcy administered? Uh, here we need to distinguish between London and country bankruptcies. Uh, this slide relates to London. From 1571 to 1831, bankruptcy proceedings were conducted by commissioners of bankrupts appointed by the Lord Chancellor, as you've already heard. They had no court, but they sat as necessary in various locations in England and Wales. Uh, there's no regular series of records before 1710, when they began to be centralised by the Office for the Commissioners of Bankrupts in London. In 1831, the Court of Bankruptcy was created in London, 
the distinction between London and country bankruptcies became significant. So if you're searching for a bankrupt, you really need to know where they lived or where their place of business was uh, to, 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 to get going. Um, until 1869, when the London Bankruptcy Court was created, the definition of London uh, seems to have varied. Um, it certainly included the continuous built-up metropolitan area. Uh, sometimes it was held to extend to a 20-mile radius from the centre uh, or to the area covered by the bills of mortality. Uh, from 1869, when the London Court of Bankruptcy was established, London was defined as the area within the jurisdiction of the City of London and of the Metropolitan County Courts, which were then Bloomsbury, Bow, Brompton, Clerkenwell, Lambeth, Marylebone, Southwark, Shoreditch, Westminster and Whitechapel. Later, it extended to the County of London and then to the County of Greater London. Uh, meanwhile, country referred throughout to the remainder of England and Wales. But at all, all periods, proceedings relating to country bankruptcies could be heard in London and vice versa for calls given. So you just have to remember, even if your chap was a country man, he might still be in the London courts and vice versa. Right, the country bankruptcies. Um, I've covered uh, the, the first part of that. Um, and you'll see that the... Um, the, the Court of Bankruptcy in London con continued to administer the country commissioners right up to 1842. Uh, but from 1842 onwards, country bankruptcy proceedings were held in, first of all, the district bankruptcy courts, so listed in there, uh, and in the county courts. The final point to notice there, and on the previous slide, is that until 1883, bank the bankruptcy commissioners and courts were responsible not only for the legal function of determining bankruptcy, but also for overseeing the practical function of administering, realising and transferring bankruptcy states. But from 1883, the latter function was transferred for both London and country to the bankruptcy department of the Board of Trade and its successors. Uh, so even though there are records of local bankruptcies in local courts, the central function of administering the estates remains with the Board of Trade and its successors, and the records are in TNA. During all this time, you could appeal against bankruptcy verdicts. It's worth knowing this because if you're interested in somebody who did go to appeal, in the appeal records you'll often find considerable details which are not found in the original case. Uh, and I've already mentioned... Uh, in 18, that should say 1813, uh, the, the Court for the Relief of in, Insolvent Debtors uh, was set up. Um, this was for insolvent debtors who, who hadn't qualified for bankruptcy pre proceedings and, and up till then had been subject to the criminal law. Um, details of proceedings against them appear in local and national criminal court and prison records, so in lots of different places. Uh, and lists of insolvent prisoners applying for release were also published in the London Gazette show you an example of that later. Uh, in 1813, the Court for the Relief of Insolvent Debtors was established in Portugal Street, and it regulated a gradual reduction in the harshness of the law against debtors over the following decades. They were increasingly able to petition for release from prison or for protection under aspects of bankruptcy law, and therefore details of insolvent debtors are increasingly, but not always, found in bankruptcy records. Uh, as I've already mentioned, after 1861, the distinction between bankruptcy and insolvency uh, were abolished and all debtors became subject to bankruptcy proceedings. Right, time that we saw some nice pictures. Um, this is uh, uh, an elevation of the 
London Bankruptcy Court um, in Basinghall Street. Um, as I said, before, before that was established, the commissioners seemed to have sat in several places. The London ones sat at Guildhall in the city and at Lincoln's Inn Fields in Westminster. Uh, the permanent court was built uh, in 1821 at 82 Basinghall Street and remained till, where it remained until 1869. Here's a contemporary account of it, a large quadrangular building consisting of 14 rooms connected by commodious galleries. It is entirely devoted to matters of bankruptcy and has an attached office for the registry of all business relating thereto. In other words, that's where the records come from. Uh, in 1869, the court transferred to 33 to 34 Lincoln's Inn Fields, and since 1883, as part of the Supreme Court, uh, it has sat both within the Royal Courts of Justice and at Carey Street nearby. Uh, some, some of you will be aware that the term in Carey Street was at, used elusively as a, as, as a description of a bankrupt person. You find it in 1920s and 30s novels. Right, I've described the system. Uh, now I'm now going to move on to the records it produced. Now, as I've already said, the formal records of the commissions of bankrupts don't start before 1710. But early records of bankruptcy proceedings can be found in a number of sources here in TNA. State papers and proceedings of the Privy Council, these contain occasional references to bankruptcy proceedings, uh, usually in connection with petitions to the Crown by bankrupts or creditors alleging injustice. I'll show you an example of that in a moment. Uh, the flow strolls, these contain copies of the conveyances of bankrupt's estates by commissioners of bankrupts, and the entries often give details of the prior bankruptcy proceedings. Patent rolls and the supplementary patent rolls, uh, these contain the appointments of commissioners of bankrupts and often include details of proceedings. Uh, and finally, from 1684 onwards, the London Gazette contains official notices relating to bankruptcy proceedings. Uh, it includes the names of many who don't appear in the records, but it excludes many who do. So, always worth a look. I'll be saying more about that in a minute. Right, here we are, Privy Council Register. I don't expect you'll be able to read it, but anyway, it uh, records a complaint from John Kember to the Lord Chancellor who says that he was still owed £80 from the estates of Lightfoot and Robbins, uh, presumably bankruptcy proceedings being concluded against them. Um, and it appears that the money hadn't come to John Kember, but they got into, it had got into the hands of Sir Thomas Offley, who was presumably another creditor, um, and John Kember wanted to get hold of it. Um, I'm afraid we don't know the outcome of the case, but you can imagine if creditors aren't properly regulated, that's the sort of thing which could happen official notice of bankruptcy in the London Gazette. The main purpose of these uh, was to inform creditors uh, about how and where they should prove their debts and secure their share of the bankruptcy, bankrupt's assets. Um, as I said, they don't precisely overlap with the records themselves, uh, and I think this is mainly because um, the, these, the records in the London Gazette are only for cases where proceedings have been pursued to the stage where the creditors might expect to be able to clear a, a share a claim of the assets. Uh, if any case came to an end before that, it wouldn't appear in the London Gazette. There are many other published sources, uh, lists of bankrupts. Uh, Times newspaper lists them from 1785 onwards. And you can see I put in brackets there, there is now an online product which enables 
easy searching. You can access it here, but in, in other places as well. Uh, local newspapers are a very good source for local bankruptcy proceedings. Uh, and again, uh, there is now an online product produced by the British Library, which contains records of many local newspapers, far, far from all, but that's uh, a, a, another good, good thing to search. Uh, below that, I've listed several specialist periodicals, which just listed bankrupts and insolvents. Uh, you can find those in, in many places. So far as I'm aware, though, all, all those listed, Bailey, Smith, Elricks, etc., are based on the London, London Gazette. Um, and also, outside the UK, uh, as you, sorry, outside England and Wales, as you can see at the bottom, there's the Edinburgh, Dublin and Belfast Gazettes. Right. Um, the court records record three different stages on the whole. First of all, there's the initiation of bankruptcy proceedings. Uh, the proceedings were initiated by a petition for bankruptcy by creditors to the commissioners or courts, um, and they were followed by the issue, the, the issue of a commission to 1831 or a fiat, 1832 to 1849, or adjudication from 1849 of bankruptcy by the court. So that's, that's stage one. The person is decreed bankrupt. Uh, following that, there's a phase in which which was devoted to the transfer, management, and distribution of the bankrupt's um, estates. Um, from 1707, bankruptcy commissioners and courts were empowered to transfer the estates to assignees, or later trustees, chosen by the creditors or by the court, so that they might realise its value and distribute it rateably in proportion among the creditors. Uh, this usually involves examinations of the bankrupt, and depositions or sworn, or sworn statements from the witnesses. I'll be showing you some examples in a minute. Uh, the distribution of estates could be decided by a resolution of creditors with a composition or arrangement between debtors and creditors. All these words appear in the records, so that, that, that's why I'm telling you them. Um, and uh, sometimes creditors, uh, uh, debts could be settled by partial payments, which were called dividends. Uh, from 1888, many cases were settled by private deeds of arrangement without the need for full bankruptcy proceedings, but the deeds of arrangements are still, still recorded in the records. Uh, from 1883, when a bankruptcy position, petition was presented, the courts made receiving orders or administration orders, we still have those today, um, for an official receiver of the Board of Trade to receive and manage the estate in the interests of creditors pending the appointment of trustees. And when they finished their duties, the official receivers were granted an official release. All these things are subject, are, are described in the records. Uh, third stage, uh, after uh, the estates had been distributed, was the discharging of bankrupts. From 1705, bankrupts who conformed with the statutory requirements could, uh, and providing the specified proportion of creditors agreed, be discharged from the remaining debts and resume economic acti activity. Uh, and this was affected by grants of certificates of conformity uh, up till 1861 and orders of dis discharge from 1861 onwards. Right, just a bit about the typical types of records that you'll see if you, if, if you get into bankruptcy records. Uh, I will be showing examples in a minute. Registers, uh, these relate to all bankruptcy proceedings. Uh, and usually include the name 
place of residence and occupation of the bankrupt and of his creditors, and the date and results of the bankruptcy proceedings. Uh, some also give the name and address of the bankrupt's solicitor or agent. Uh, enrolments between 1758 and 1859, bankrupts or other persons with an interest in the case could petition for copies of proceedings to be enrolled as of record. And the resulting enrolment books often give much more information than the registers, registers but of course they only cover a small proportion of the cases. Um, case files. Um, now these are usually the most detailed source. Uh, they bring together all the papers relating to a particular case, but unfortunately they only survive for a small proportion of bankruptcies. Um, they may include the bankrupt's balance sheet, which itemises assets and liabilities, and they may give much incidental information about the bankrupt, his family and his circumstances. Uh, they're also a useful source for social and economic history for their aggregate information about wealth, credit, capital investment, income, profit, suppliers, customers, and business practices. Uh, and then finally, it's, uh, separately, appeals, orders, and minutes. I've already mentioned there. Something worth looking at. Right, here's a an example of a register, the well-known bankruptcy docket books. Uh, you can see the columns there. Bankrupt, description, age, trade occupation, residence, uh, solicitor or agent. I couldn't get it in my shop, but over here is, is a record of the dates in which the proceedings took place. That is a typical bankruptcy register. That's the basic information you get about all bankrupts. In the left-hand column, the red numeral indicate that a case file has survived. Well, no, sorry, the underlined red numbers indicate where a case file has survived. So if you find a reference in these registers, which indicates there's a case file, you can go straight to the case file records. Right, more examples. Um, Oscar Wilde. This was before he went bankrupt, and as you can see, he still looks confident, happy, and full of himself. Um, it's well known that Wilde's brilliant career as an author and wit came to an end when he ill-advisedly sued the Marquess of Queensbury for criminal libel. Uh, this led to a sequence of events in which he himself was eventually charged and convicted of gross indecency. What's less well known that he, is that he was also adjudicated bankrupt and remained so until he died. Uh, the costs in the libel case were awarded to the Marquess of Queensbury. Wilde couldn't pay them. His friends rallied round, but then several other creditors emerged with claims against him. Even the sale of his house in Tite Street and all his possessions could not save him, and he was declared bankrupt in the Carey Street Court in November 1895. Here's... Uh, a copy of his examination. I'm afraid you probably won't be able to, to read the details, but it's the same old story, more outgoings and ingoings. It says at the top, question, your expenditure during the two years preceding the date of the receiving order has been at the rate of 2,900 a year. Quite a lot of money in those days, uh, and upwards. You were therefore living beyond your income. Is that not so? Uh, wild, yes. And the account showed that in July 1893, your liabilities were in excess of your assets to the amount of £1,450. Yes, that's it. Even uh, Oscar Wilde was, was humbled. This is also in his file. Um, this is uh, a document of the costs involved in selling his literary assets, uh, a matter of considerable interest to literary historians, people who are interested in Wilde's career and what he wrote. And, and, uh, uh, and, and it was also uh, still relevant today. 
And uh, as I mentioned, once the Marquess of Queensbury had demanded the cost of the case, and while he was saying he couldn't afford it, hundreds, literally hundreds of other uh, creditors came out of the woodwork uh, and filed uh, bills about what Wilde owed them. Up to then, he'd been a successful, forward-looking, uh, famous person riding on the crest of a wave, and nobody bothered about collecting bills, a bit like certain banks we can think of today. But below it, he was spending more than he was getting in, uh, so all the creditors come out of the uh, out of woodwork. Okay, who reads Dickens? Okay, well, anyone who's read Little Dorrit or Dombey and Sons or Pickwick Papers or, or David Caulfield uh, will possibly have noticed that what um, Dickens was very uh, interested in the matter of debt and bankruptcy and its uh, corrosive effects on the lives of the people involved. Um, and this is why. Uh, this records John, his father, being convicted as an insolvent debtor and committed to the Marshalsea Debtors Prison in 1824, together with his wife and children. Um, and those who know about uh, Dickens's life will know that that accepted Charles, who was then 12, and after an idyllic childhood, was then sent to work in a blacking factory, pasting labels on blacking bottles for six shillings a week. A seminal record uh, moment in his life, which completely, completely changed his, his, his outlook. Uh, Charles Dickens left an account of visiting his father, uh, and he told me, I remember, to take warning by the Marshalsea and to observe that if a man had £20 a year and spent £19, 19 shillings and sixpence, he would be happy, but that a shilling spent the other way would make him wretched. And I think uh, many of you will know that that was advice which was later immortalised by Mr Micawber in, in David Copfield. Right, so far I've been focusing on the value of bankruptcy records for the biographies of individuals, uh, but they can also be used for wider social and economic history topics. Now, to illustrate this, I'm going to do something fairly simple. I'm just going to show you some graphs which were produced by one historian of late 19th century England who conducted a large-scale horizontal study of the records, particularly of pay papers. He wasn't going deep down to investigate one individual. He was looking at information about particular things across the range of record. Uh, and here he records the levels of bankruptcy uh, in Manchester over um, a period of, uh, of uh, 25 years. Um, now, I don't know anything about the history of Manchester, but you can see that it produces information <coughs> what was going on here, a period of great prosperity, what was going on here, a period of, with, with problems. If you're interested in Manchester, that's obviously good stuff. Likewise, if you're interested in particular trades or occupations, uh, you see the bankruptcy le levels for farmers. Uh, obviously, they were having some sort of cycle of boom and bust. Uh, again, I don't know anything about agricultural history, but this is obviously good good evidence for what may, may have been going on in, in, in the world of uh, farming. Uh, and finally, on the macro scale, this is uh, a record of the numbers of bankruptcy for the whole of the national economy. Uh, at the top, you've got the total number of bankruptcies, indeed the arrangement, um, and then you've got the, at the bottom, you've got details of the, of the size of the uh, bankruptcy states uh, as, as a percentage of, uh, of GDP and the changes there. Uh, so if you're interested in the economic history of the UK, this, this is good evidence to show what, what was happening. Regarding the bankruptcy records themselves, 
best approach is to consult the two research guides on our website, which will give you the references to the record series you need. Uh, and then you can use our catalogue, either online or paperless, to identify the particular items you need to order. Uh, once you get to the records, most of the series of bankruptcy records in TNA are arranged or listed alphabetically or, or are indexed by the name of bankruptcy. So there, if you, if you have got an approximate date and you've got a name, the search can be quite easy. Uh, but if you haven't got approximate date, it's not because there's a lot of records and you have to search through a lot of volumes because they are very, very voluminous. Uh, so far as I know, there is no uh, systematic description of all the records of local district bankruptcy courts and county courts relating to bankruptcy. And I need to say a little bit about problems. Okay, as I've already indicated, um, bankruptcy proceedings were often lengthy and complicated, and they centred on legal technicalities and statutory requirements, which often changed uh, considerably over the years. Therefore, they can be quite difficult to understand. Uh, a sensible thing is to consult the glossary of terms, which accompanies the B3 series list in the Open Reading Room at Q. Very helpful, that one. Uh, there's the problem of unindexed partners. Um, the records tend only to be indexed by the first name partner. So if Marks and Spencer have gone bankrupt and you're looking for Spencer, you won't find them. Debtors economical with the truth. Debtors often gave false information about their occupation. Uh, they did this in order to qualify uh, as a trader. Uh, Dickens gives an example of somebody who loans some friends some matches and then calls himself a timber merchant. <laughs> uh, so many, many, many people engaged in a minor transaction outside their usual occupation in order to qualify. Uh, and if you look through the list, you'll find that an improbably large proportion uh, of bankrupts gave themselves the vague description of dealer and chapman, or dealer and chapwoman, which covers just about anything. Um, as you would expect, fraud was endemic in bankruptcy cases, particularly by debtors trying to conceal the full extent of their assets in order to protect them from seizure. Uh, so the financial details and records may not be accurate. Right. I hope that uh, just by highlighting these difficulties, I haven't put you off searching bankruptcy records. Uh, I hope I've convinced you that they're a rich source and well worth investigating. Thank you. This event was recorded live on the 3rd of November 2009 at the National Archives, Q. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.